Images are much more than birthday parties and celebrations. They can tell you about the work you have to do. They can tell you about the state of play in our story, the human story. There's something about the silence of an image that, if you allow it, can be a much more intimate observation of truth. Attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia will not hold you back. Dyslexic is kind of your super. Anything is dyslexia. Dyslexia. Hello, we are Move Beyond Words, and welcome back to another episode of our podcast sponsored by Arts Council England. I'm Elizabeth Riffian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. In this episode, we sit down with photographer, activist, and cultural connoisseur, Miss Anne Harriman. Miss Anne has experienced a prolific career from photographing countless high-profile celebrities such as Meghan Markle, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Giorgio Armani, Rihanna, Kate Blanchett, Olivia Coleman, Paul Smith, Lewis Hamilton. I could go on. He's also founded and developed a global platform to provide cultural nutrition to over a billion people per year and using his art to empower and propel activism in his photography, his art, and as the chair of the South Bank Centre. In this conversation, we delve into Miss Anne's thoughts on a world in transition, the impacts of dyslexia on his self-expression, and what it means to become the first black person in 104 years to shoot the cover of British Vogue. Welcome, Miss Anne Harriman, to the Move Beyond Words podcast. First off, like a huge thank you for, for being with us today because, you know, you are a busy guy doing such important work within our community of neurodivergent people. So, yeah, where do we start? <laughs> um, I think it would be nice to hear like what what it took um, to become a person who stands for change in the world. Mm. Like, where did that passion come from? Thanks for having me. And um, I would say trauma is is usually the seed that is planted, unfortunately, in, in one's younger life for one to really understand what injustice is. And, um, you know, as a kid, I had, I had some tough moments that um, made me realize that life wasn't always fair. And it, within those moments, I found solace and um, safety in the pages of books and in the notes of songs and in the sweet, sweet territory of art and culture, music, dance, all of the things that we do that set us apart from the rest of the natural kingdom and queendom. Mm-hmm. And uh, that allowed me to emancipate myself from pain in a way that um, nothing else could. And in, in that almost Nirvana-like state, um, I realized that so many people were the walking wounded and they weren't unshackled by so much of the trials and tribulations of life as I had luckily stumbled upon what was my own medicine for the soul. So in short, um, art and culture saved me and um, I'm now weaponizing the very medium that allowed me to see light in myself to help force change in the world. 
What an intro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've begun. And we have begun. Well, this thing about this, my type of dyslexia um, is I speak poetically, I've been told that. Um, and um, it's not, I'm not trying to be fancy. It's, it's, it's just how the way my mind um, projects feeling. So there's a direct, my mind seems to be a little bit closer to my soul than than many other people in terms of how it's been wired. So sometimes I'll speak to my wife. She's like, you could just say, can you get me the coffee? It doesn't have to be some soliloquy. I mean, yeah. you know, um, yet I can't, you know, I all say I write, I write drunk, right? You know, I, I can barely put, I can't put a sentence together with pen and paper. Um, so it's interesting, you know, when people hear me speak, they're like, oh my God, you're so eloquent. You are. And then, and then on paper, you, you wouldn't recognize the same person, which so I, I how, find how fascinating. You, how do you like navigate day to day, like with um, with some trepidation? Um, I've, 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 you know, you, you've, the, the technology has been always my, my, my dear friend, and life is a lot easier for me post the internet age than I mean before. I really was um, incredibly anxious because um, any, you know, when you're filling out like immigration documents or any kind of written form. I was like, they just, you know, I used to joke about it. I'd say, oh, I write like a serial killer and all these things to try and trivialize <laughs> um, it. And, and hopefully people would, would, would not look down on me. Um, the shame of it all um, was always there. It was a cloak that I, I wore. Um, but the internet allowed me to, to find fixes, you know, and I, I use apps, particularly Grammarly now that is, uh, you know, they should they should really sponsor me. I always bang on about Grammarly, um, and I love the deep grammar check rather than just spelling, mm. because even if I do spell check, I I my mind does not understand yeah, grammar. I just actually, see it. So I just it's like one big paragraph. There's no commas. Sometimes there's a full stop, but it it you know it's all over the shop. My husband Sonny is a writer, and um, we've tried to work together. So he kind of tries to support with. Um, applications mm -hmm. but it's it's not being able to see what someone else sees so when he's like but just read it and mm -hmm. then you can see where the the breath is or you know if you're trying to say that you know just say what you just said mm -hmm. and I'm like ah mm -hmm. but that's the kind of frustration of it and I think having a partner we've been together for 10 years and mm -hmm. I think that of evolution of our relationship and trying to understand one another has been such a, a vital part of yep. my growth um, and his growth. So I wonder how has your partner kind of supported you? I mean, you know, Camilla, it's funny, she's Swedish um, and somewhat Germanic in nature, very much top of her class at school, perfect handwriting. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of those people that sort of types on a computer, Betty looks at the screen and she's like, what are your fingers doing? This is amazing. How do you do that? Um, so, um, sh so much of my life has changed since meeting her. Um, Self-love and self-doubt, you know, definitely the same coin. And she helped mm -hmm. me flip, flip that coin and, and recognize that um, my mind was worthy. So one of the first things she did was tell me that there's nothing wrong with my mind. Um, she fell in love with my mind first. And um, there is probably not a more important moment in my journey than having her recognize 
the difference in how I see the world is something that she unequivocally feels is a beautiful thing. And um, that gave me a lot more self-confidence to to chase my own dreams, whether it be the photography, um, civil rights, um, or to think that somebody with my perceived ailments could could do things that I thought I I could never do. Um, so she's she's been that pillar from the very beginning. Absolutely, oh, and yeah, she checks. You know, if it's an important document, I I, I still put her before Grammarly. Um, and, uh, Does she mind? No. Oh, that's not at all. In fact, she's like, uh, can I, can I have a look at that? Just, just, I know, I know, I, I know it's, it's all fine, but let me just oh, that's lovely. give her one over, yeah. That is really nice because we were actually discussing recently about, I mean, you've just explained that you're really eloquent when speaking verbally and yeah, it's quite challenging sometimes to put the same information across on paper. Yeah. And f- for artists, for pitching for mm. um, commissions, funding, to, to get seen, uh, you have to kind of lay that out. Mm. And we were discussing recently, how can we change uh, the opportunity to pitch in a more uh, mm. dyslexia-friendly way? Yeah. Is it walking into a room and creating a, a more kind of physical yeah. um, environment? Brainstorming. Brainstorming, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And... Um, you know, as your chair of the South Bank, and you were just speaking before we started recording about going into these art spaces mm. and making change. Mm. Is that something that you? Think well, I, about? I, I think this country needs to. You know, I, I work a lot in prisons, and um, I uh, found out that in, in a couple of the prisons, at least eighty percent of the intake is considered neurodivergent, neurodiverse. Um, and then I went, I had the great honor of spending some time with Sir Johnny Ive of Apple fame, who is, uh, again, a very dyslexic man um, who cannot spell at all. And he's changed the world a couple of times with his, you know, the late, great Steve Jobs. And I found out that on some years, well over 80% of the intake to the Royal College of Art has been considered neurodivergent. And, wow. you know, if you consider the prison population and then the, you know, the, 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 the the intake in, in art schools, um, I think we're failing so many. And um, it has to start um, with parents understanding what tools that they have to, to help their children thrive. And then, mm. you know, when they leave the house and get into the school, what, you know, I'm, I'm 44 and I can tell you in the 80s, there was, you know, my report, I failed everything. I, I, you know, I couldn't, I had one English teacher, uh, never forget her, Mrs. Lyons, that saw me, you know, and she would, she would hand me my, my prep and it was like rice paper because she had been crying. And um, she, she would say to me, you know, I'm supposed to give you a D or an E, but I have to give this an A um, because what I'm reading through your challenges is astonishing. And she was the first person to 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 see that, and and um, I remember I remember that how huge it was. Every other class, I was you know in the back of the class, dejected, and I found everything too slow because I need inputs all the time, and you know I I was saved by two things. I was huge physically, so I, no one bullied me, which allowed me at least to have that kind of physical confidence. Mm, yeah, and um, I had this teacher 
Um, so every English lesson, I, I just was really, really excited to try and tell stories. So I, I think educationally, things have changed a lot, but we still have a long way to go. And then a support structure for parents to understand um, that a different mind can be exactly what's needed. It doesn't need to be changed. It needs to be supported. So it can be what that mind was always supposed to be. The idea that I'm, I've become one of the leading photographers in the world after just picking up the camera in four years is because my mind is different. So why, why would I change that? Also, I believe a lot of the empaths, you know, the people that genuinely give a damn about others are uh, neurodivergent. Um, my, <laughs> my wife says that, you know, you're one of these people that opens a door for someone and as they walk through, you look at them and say, thank you. And she's like, what's wrong with you? Um, and a lot of us are also hypersensitive, um, yes. which, which is intrinsically linked to, to my own condition, where I, I can't be in rooms and see anything that doesn't seem right. And I feel it mm. so much more. Um, and my, my wife is always with me in these rooms. She's like, my God, does it, do you feel it that much? I said, yeah, I do. I, I, I get very anxious, very uncomfortable if I see something that doesn't sit sit right with me. Um, and I think they're linked somehow. Absolutely. And you can see that you feel it. You can see that you're t still telling those stories that mm. you did with Miss Lyons. Yeah. Um, I have to mention her name, actually. So yeah, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder through, if she's listening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we could send it to her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it'd be lovely. But, it's you know, you were saying that you were telling stories at that age and you're mm. still telling stories through your photography. Mm. And you said that you're self-taught. Mm. Could you take us through how? Yeah, I mean, I was a kid um, again at school that 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 um, cared only really cared about story storytelling, whether it was in books or or visual storytelling. So my heroes were all, all always people that um, made me feel something. They switched on my emotion engine. So I was curating, if you like, um, at school really early without knowing what that was. I was a kid that kept telling all my mates, you've got to listen to this song, you've got to watch this movie, you've got to check out this magazine. And uh, I didn't know then, but clearly that was training my eye for what was to come in much later life. For my 40th birthday, we were going to Rajasthan. Um, uh, and um, my wife got me a camera. And uh, I, I, we had the most extraordinary holiday, and I took the worst pictures ever. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't stop. Um, and um, I taught myself on YouTube. Again, I'm a visual learner, and um, I always say that I failed, and I failed, and I then I really failed, and then I failed, <laughs> and then I didn't. And um, I think it's so important to speak openly about not being a master of the universe, but being someone that listened to some middle-aged woman and man who's in their garage explaining how aperture works and that's literally how I learned how to take pictures and I photographed initially the people I loved my daughter Bella was premature and um, it, was, it was a really traumatic time for the family at the time and I, I used the camera to to almost shield myself from my anxiety of having something so precious and so vulnerable for the first, I don't know, six months of her life. And the camera led me to a place of safety. And I speak about this um, openly about the camera to me is much more than 
a, a device for making images. It's been my gateway to understanding the fidelity of the human spirit in a way that no other medium or specific tool has managed to show me. So I always look to that device when I don't have an answer. Do you think that um, when you're capturing someone, I've, I've always wondered this, that you're kind of capturing their essence. Is that your kind of ambition when yeah, photographing I'm, you someone? Know, I say I'm a custodian of truth. Um, and I feel that at least the type of photography that I do, I like to have a duty of care mm. for my subject. And um, I do believe the soul whispers. And um, if you understand the frequency of those whispers, you can borrow a piece of somebody so the world can see who they are. And that's a marriage of composition, light, the camera itself, and a moment of unspoken trust between you and the subject. And that's the waltz that is making pictures, as far as I'm concerned. So everyone has a different way of shooting it, but that's it's very important really see that. to me. Yeah. yeah, you can really see that in your images. You're capturing, yeah, just this moment. It's, it's quite spiritual. Like it's, um, and to know when those moments are, you can see how your levels of empathy and oh, yeah. um, the ability to, yeah, just feel beyond what some someone's facade. Yeah. What I always tell these kids today that are always asking me, oh, you know, how do I become a top photographer? And I'm like, put the camera down, put the camera down and learn about the importance of photography. Yeah. Learn about the importance of, of the imagery. I think one of the reasons I jumped so fast in this game is that I've always been a massive fan of of the still image from you know from the Jewish immigrants that came over to Ellis Island with nothing but different parts of a camera. They'd lost everything else. And they knew that being able to capture moments and memories was more important than even the clothes on their backs. And, you know, the birth of um, at least the American side of photojournalism came from those immigrants. I remember seeing the picture of Coretta Scott King, the wife of Martin Luther King, at the funeral of her husband, and this picture has changed my life. And you have this woman looking somehow graceful, somehow with it and elegant, whilst she's at the funeral of her murdered husband with her daughter, who must have been three or four years old, wondering where her father is in her lap. And I remember looking at that image by Manila Sleet Jr., who was the first black man to win a Pulitzer for photography, and thinking, okay, images are much more than birthday parties and celebrations. They can tell you about the work you have to do. They can tell you about the state of play in our story the human story in, in ways that, you know, even music and film don't quite, you know, a, a photograph, you, you, you receive it in your own words. You translate it into your, you know, in your own, it's a very intimate thing. Um, whereas music, it forces itself more upon you. And so does film. There's something about the silence of an image that if you allow it can be a much more intimate observation of truth. 
when I go and develop my uh, my images, they're all pretty much blank. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm definitely um, listening when you're saying fail, fail, fail. <laughs> Yeah, it's always yeah. quite disappointing when I go develop my, <laughs> my images. That's not true, um, I certainly don't get that um, feeling that you're just, just describing there. But I do when I see your work and I, I also learn so much with what you're releasing on social media mm. and and other platforms and I just love that you're you're holding that space within quite an overcrowded platform, I would mm. say. Mm. Um, and it's amazing that you're educating people through your work, through your interests. Mm. Well, I mean, fu- fundamentally, I have no, I never plan what I post online. I post what I feel. In general, being an empath means that you can't help but try and give a voice to the voiceless. Mm. And that's everyone from people of color, um, from the full spectrum of gender, fluidity, and identity um, to both visible and invisible Mm. um, disabilities. The idea that I have to fight to make the obvious noticed is one of the biggest failings of modern man. The idea that there are influential people, celebrities that only have, you know, I don't know, only 100,000 followers on my Instagram. And there are people that have 50 million. I wish I could get a collection of people like the Kardashians together and say, listen, post whatever you want all day long, but give me one post a week. And if I had one post a week with those accounts, what I could teach young girls, what I could teach people from the gay and trans community, how I could make them be seen at scale would save and change lives. One of the most heartbreaking things for me is to see these people that have more followers in some countries not realize the potential power they hold to really force change. So in my own little way, with my own somewhat small influence, I am doing that and hopefully people will follow. I thought what we see because I was disturbed by what I was seeing on the internet. You know, I, mm-hmm. I called it um, at the time and the weaponization of mediocrity. You know, the normalization of content was that was awful for your mental health. And I wanted people to experience the sensory experience I had as a kid. Yeah. You know, the idea that people have never listened to Neil Young or Joni Mitchell, or they don't know the writings of Langston Hughes or Pablo Neruda. Um, is a crime to me because all of these people have shaped me and they've made me see the beauty of the human condition. And the idea that we are on um, a diet of Kardashians and um, Love Island, where, I mean, Love Island is is massively disturbing to me. Apart from the suicide rate of people that have been on that show, it's them looking at, us looking at them. And, you know, it's that playground pointing the finger and laughing at scale. You know, a lot of the people that are picked for these shows are already vulnerable. You know, they haven't had the best start in life. And it's so easy to laugh at somebody because they look a certain way. But most of us look a certain way because it's our armor. It's how we try and survive a world that we're a little bit scared of. So why would we put a group of people that need love in a place where 
we use them as court gestures. That's not television to me. We have to have a duty of care. And if I was a commissioner, I would be ashamed of myself for having that sort of thing on TV. So I set up what we see for those that are a little bit lost. And fundamentally, I don't think people have bad taste. People don't wake up and say, I want to watch Love Island. They don't wake up and say, I want to destroy my mind with the Daily Mail. It's what's put in front of them. Yeah. People are busy. And if the, you know, the, the, the obvious quickest hit is what it is, then you just do it and get on with feeding your kids or trying to pay a mortgage and all, all the other stuff. So what I wanted to do is build a platform where you didn't need to worry about that. If you get on what we see, you will have, you know, a digital diet that is going to be absolute medicine for the soul. And um, it grew very fast. You know, we reached well over a billion people a year. And um, it's, 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 you know, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, yeah. When you're in a loop mm-hmm. and you don't know what's outside of that loop, mm-hmm. Tapping in to stop it mm-hmm. and to have different um, information be fed into that loop is such a difficult thing. Mm. Um, and I think especially with people who have gone through trauma mm. um, with school and education, we're seeking more mm. in life because we know there is more out there because we felt it, mm. you know, we've, we've felt you know, the harshness of of the world and there's got to be, it can't be this harsh, you know. And so it's, I I feel like in some respects being dyslexic and having ADHD has allowed me an opportunity to see beyond what is Mm. presented to me in the world. And so like, how how do we do that? Like we, you know, obviously create opportunities with art, free art, Mm. but that's not necessarily their interest. And I think you saying about like the Kardashians, Mm. like having you know, a slot on their Instagram. I think that's genius because, you know, that's where people are looking and mm. we can educate in that in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, have you any other ideas with what we see, like how to how to get to that it's, space? It's, it's all curation. You know, p- people, um, even, even people that are seemingly too busy, they still cu- have a curated, their own curated experience. You know, if there's a guy that likes to read you know, the son, he's been told that that's what he should do from quite a young age, right? Human beings are intrinsically tribal in nature, you know, which is why you see grown men screaming at football matches and crying and, you know, we need to feel like we belong. So I, I hope, you know, and my wife, my wife said, don't you ever get into politics. So I'm not going to get into politics, <laughs> but I hope I can, I can find a way to persuade the people that hold the purses, um, the marketing companies, yeah. some politicians, if they have an inch of empathy, we shall see, to understand that it is not that hard to change a narrative positively. At the height of my images going viral everywhere, um, I, my business partner, Trevor, particularly at what we see, managed to persuade Landsec and Ocean Outdoor to put my images on um, in Piccadilly Circus on the big lights there. Oh my gosh. And it was, it was extraordinary to see. And um, I, I went a few times. There was one time I went there really early and uh, I saw I saw this, this young girl looking up and there were a group of people near her and 
I was like, oh God, I hope no one recognizes me. And she saw me and I could see she knew who I was. And she walked over and she goes, my family have come down from Scotland. I was going to come down by myself, but you know, my parents said, no, it's a long way. And um, she goes, those are my parents over there. And I was like, okay, that's trying to be polite and, you know. And she goes, my dad has had racist views his whole life. And I've been arguing with him from when I was younger, she said. And I was like, okay, I said, that's amazing. And she goes, he's crying over there. You know, it was extraordinary. And I was like, what do you mean he's crying? And she said, he's looking at those pictures and he's in tears. Can you, would you like to meet him? <laughs> So I walk over, and uh, there's this big, big old burly guy, and I can see his eyes are red, and he's looking up. And uh, I said, hi, nice to meet you, I'm Miss Anne. I took those pictures. And he looks at me and goes, you took those pictures? And he said, I just didn't know. He said, my daughter's been t- trying to tell me, and I've been trying to protect her, but I didn't know. And um, I said, what do you see in those pictures? And he said, I see the pain of others. It was, it was really, really, and I haven't really shared this moment. I remember I, I walked for like three miles afterwards, thinking, you know, this is why we have to recognize that it's not that people in general are bad. It's mainly they're scared of what they don't know. And I saw a father who was trying to protect his little girl from the big world, who probably hadn't had parents that helped him understand that being different doesn't mean it's bad. And he was stood there, probably in his 50s, looking up at images of people that are both black and white that were saying that we have to be better than who we are today and who we were in the past. And he was transmitted that message from the picture that I took. And what more can I say? I mean, what more can you do as well? Like, I think that that's, you know, having that power behind a lens is just game-changing, you know? It's, it's a power, and I know it's maybe it is power, but for me, it's it's a duty of care. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't see it so much as power. I, I, I see it if, if people are going to share their pain and their hope and their fortitude in this specific situation of civil rights, then it's my duty of care to be the custodian of their stories because human beings have really funny memories, and we can get back to business as usual post-COVID and become those people that barely say hi and bye as we're commuting to work and think that think that empathy is finite, right? What I mean by that is that, you know, you watch the news, you're like, oh, I mean, I've got to look after my kids or myself. I haven't got time to care about others. And that's BS, actually. Um, the more you feed the amount of purpose and empathy that you, you, you have within you, and it's, it's an infinite amount, human beings. It's another thing that makes us extraordinary. The, the more you grow and are capable of, of living a richer life, the more you don't feed it. Um, you can look at people like Donald Trump, who, who is a man of zero empathy. You, you 
become something that is not really a mirror of what I would call humanity. It's a class system as well. I mean, no, no country has refined the term the ruling class quite like the English. And I'm a boy that went to the poshest schools you can imagine. And although I'm black, I was raised as a privileged white boy. Mm-hmm. So it's I, the, the duality of my life is interesting because I have dealt with racism my whole life and I have been of it, but I've also seen and I have plenty of friends that have just floated through life and 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 there'll be an intern there, an intern there, and suddenly they're MDs of private equity firms or hedge funds and they're you know members of specific clubs that allow you specific opportunities and before you know it, they become members of 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 certain parties in the political spectrum and before you know it, they're deciding about our health care. And I've been to school with so many men, mainly men like that. And um, what I would say is that, you know, I also did the hackney carriage test. You know, I knew that we had a problem in this country because if, if you ha- if you speak to a cabbie about politics, um, they tend not to go into too much detail on their politics, but they, you know, they make it very clear that they will pick the person that entertains them and i i've i've really had to take time with some of these mainly men um who are from working class backgrounds and i'm like these guys are not smarter than you i tell them i said don't think because your cabbie and your dad was a cabbie and you went to a comprehensive that somebody that went to eton is smarter than you Mm. and certainly don't think that they have empathy for your plight or your children's plight. You know, I said, you've been programmed to think that somebody that speaks a certain way and looks a certain way is going to do good for you. I think it's a very dangerous thing. And we have to unlearn all of that in this country. Unlearning is really, really important. And I spoke to you earlier about, you know, the history of of, of um, colonial truths, truths and lies. And um, I remember being put on the spot by a woman, I think it was on Sky News, one one of the channels. And, you know, my imagery has nothing to do with Winston Churchill, but she threw me the biggest hot potato you can, right? In England, she said, oh, well, you're you're BLM. So do you want to pull down Churchill's statue? And I'm like, this is odd, because we were just talking about my images. And, but this is the thing about the privilege of my education, because I could give her the answer I gave her. And I said, actually, I do not want to pull down Churchill statues. I want them all to stay up and I want to put placards around them and at the front, and it can be in gold if you like, we can talk about the great wartime leader that he was. And on the left, we can talk about how he was an aficionado. Like me, he loved a good cigar. (laughs) On the right, we can talk about how he was an extraordinarily talented painter and his time spent at Blenheim painting. And on the back, we can talk about his well documented views um, that were horrific Mm. about people of color. These are all truths about this man. And I want that tourist to walk around that statue and they can decide for themselves about the many sides of Winston Churchill. Truth shouldn't be something that is a needle in a haystack. 
Furthermore, I said, it's the same thing about Mahatma Gandhi. You know, he had very disturbing views towards black people. Let history's truth be availed to us. It, it shouldn't be a work of fiction. And um, I, I, I stand by that and I believe it's very important. Well, a huge moment in history as your cover of Vogue. Mm. And that happened during the Yeah, yeah it did. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about and yeah, the process? I mean, yeah, I, I um, after George Floyd was murdered, I I didn't know what to do, and and you know I've I've said this a few times now. I ran out of tears. You know, I had run dry, and um, my wife said, uh, as always, that I should look to the camera. And um, I took the camera and went into the streets of London, not knowing whether I would shoot five people or five thousand with my camera and um, I saw you want to talk about Great Britain I saw the most extraordinary showcase of solidarity and allyship and hope of what this country could be in a way that I never even dreamt of and I managed to capture that with my camera and um, many celebrities use my images and obviously the son of Martin Luther King himself used my image to make his big statement, which is truly wow. um, uh, you know, one of those moments that I just, I, I find extraordinary. I mean, I picked up a camera because of an image of his mother. Can, can, can you imagine that? And, and, and now he's using my picture. And then Edward Enningful, the editor-in-chief of British Vogue, seen, saw my images and posted a few of them. And then they just DM'd me, the Vogue team, and I didn't know any of them. And they... Um, they started talking to me and at the end of the Zoom, Edward said, look, you're the voice we've been missing and I'm going to give you the cover. And I was wow. like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, knowing what September issue means um, is, is a thing in itself in fashion. Mm. At the time, I didn't know I was the first black man to shoot any cover, let alone the September issue. I now realize that that's what power and purpose is. You know, you have a queer black man, Edward, and in full, who is in a position of great power but he has lived a life where he's been othered. So he understands the importance of giving space to voices that would never have space. And he let me into a room of opportunity that has changed my life forever. And I took that train up to Manchester and I I photographed Marcus Rashford and Adora Burr, two extraordinary human beings. And we all knew, but Marcus, Adwa, we were all nervous when we we got there because we... We knew that we were we were making something beyond a magazine cover, and um, you know I'll dare say that um, Edward orchestrated a symphony of activism of the likes that's never been seen in the UK before. Things go in cycles, and I feel like we are in another cycle, and we're in a cycle of hope, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but but change, you know, we are seeing change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've kind of said before, your CV isn't suitable for mm. businesses. What would your advice be for others who are dyslexic and find it incredibly difficult to communicate through emails and Well, I think things, things, things are changing. I mean, I'm chair of the South Bank Centre, right? And, like, I genuinely am the school dropout with no degree. I, I am that person. You know, so on paper, 
there's no good reason for me to be where I am. And I think they interviewed 150 people. And um, it's clear to me that the reason I kept going forward in each round is because of how I communicated to mm. them. Certainly not wasn't because of anything written. And, you know, I, I think more and more institutions are realizing that their workforce um, um, can be far more dynamic in their skill set than what is um, a stamp of approval from institutions. And I, I, I believe with um, virtual workplaces happening and us being able to use our tools more um, inherently built into our iPads or PCs or personal sort of internet devices, that we are going to be far less um, disadvantaged against people that maybe don't have some of the afflictions that we do. Also, inclusivity and diversity um, in the workplace for me um, is not just for women or black or Indian Asian people. It has to be inclusivity and diversity of thought. And if you look at most of the people that have changed the world, I, I am not their doctors, but I'm very sure that the Elon Musk and Steve Jobs of this world are on a spectrum of neurodivergence. Yeah. No right. doubt. Absolutely. Um, so we, we kind of have a good track record um, <laughs> of, of what can happen when we're empowered. Um, so the combination of technology helping us, the workplace changing in, in towards our our almost advantage in many ways, but towards us having a, a, you know, some kind of chance to be seen mm-hmm. and companies recognizing that um, w- we may add so much more than what they've been even looking for to a company, I think um, is going to be realized more and more. And also having people like me that actively, you know, speak about it. You know, I photograph Sir, Sir Paul Smith not long ago, and he is, you know, wow. openly dyslexic. I photographed Lewis Hamilton, who, who is a, you know, uh, again openly dyslexic. I mean, they, <laughs> just look at these people. Um, yeah. You know, um, they 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 have um, different minds, and in their own way, they've changed the world for better. And I think we need to celebrate our heroes, celebrate the people that have, through adversity, used their beautiful different minds to find a place in the world that brings light. Um, So to all those boys and girls that are listening that think that they, I mean, I was ashamed of my mind for 30 odd years, ashamed of it. You know, my school reports made me ashamed of it. And um, through the love of an extraordinary woman and um, a myriad of different things like the internet itself, um, I've been able to fall back in love with my mind and harness its potential to help others hopefully not go through what I went through. One thing I wanted to pick up on, which you said empowered you to persevere, and it's really sad that certain experiences within education and with certain systems have been such an obstacle. It's been Mm. so challenging. Mm. And do you have one thought that could help big voices create change within neurodiversity in their sectors? Honestly, um, people with influence need to celebrate their their vulnerability mm-hmm. and their their differences. We're not this Instagram age of perceived perfection is is lethal. You know the the idea that you have to look a certain way and everything is perfect in your life is 
is is um is is another sort of virus. Mm-hmm. So I hope we coming out of COVID that we this is a new age where we wear our imperfections with as badges of honor. That's why I, I always bang on. You know, if if I'm one of the most visible photographers in the world, I'm running one of the largest multi arts institutions in the world, right? If I can do all of these things and I can say unreservedly that I am someone that suffers from anxiety, someone whose mind is certainly wired differently, and someone who still struggles with self-doubt and self-love, just having people hear that is is so important. And um, I would be a fraud if I sat here and I told you that I am one of these masters of the universe where everything is seemingly perfect because that's always been a lie. We've been lied to by people. You know, anyone that is projecting that perceived perfection is doing a disservice to themselves and you. So my hope is that people of influence celebrate vulnerability. It's a simple thing, but believe me, it can save lives. So many young boys and girls are really struggling right now. You know, the suicide rate is way up higher than it's been in a long, long time. And um, they need to know that they are not broken. They need to know that all of us are building ourselves up brick by brick together. I have a duty of care for the vulnerable souls that feel so alone in this world. Um, So I, I, I cannot stop and hopefully it becomes infectious with some of the more powerful people that I have access to. What advice would your younger self give to you now? My younger self gives to me now is run towards a pain. You know, go into that dark place and then exhale and you'll see the light. I always was too scared to walk into that dark place and it meant that I was in this haze, this fog of unneeded fear, of loneliness that I could not exercise without meeting somebody that could pull it out of me like it was a string. And um, that's what uh, I would listen to, is to, to run into the pain and the light will follow. I mean, I'll, f- I'll, I'll, I'll finish with... You know, I love movies, movie scenes particularly. Mm. And uh, there's a great scene in Forrest Gump, which so many people have seen, but they, they forget. I watched that um, religiously. <laughs> and it's a really important scene because it, the, the beautiful thing about Forrest Gump is, is that he was considered a simple man, yet he saw the world in a fidelity that the great poets and prophets would be jealous of. And there's a scene where Jenna is sick with this unknown disease that is clearly HIV. And um, they finally are together again. And she hasn't seen the world. Because Jenny was a, 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 a product of childhood trauma. And she hurt herself throughout the film um, to deal with the pain that was so much of her formative years. And she, she asked for us, you know, what is the world like 
And it's such an extraordinary scene because Tom Hanks talks about his time in Vietnam and looking up and seeing the moonlight and the poetry of the stars in the sky and running in the desert and not knowing where heaven ended and the earth started. And it's just a stunning montage. And I always tell people to watch it because um, it is a very succinct sort of four or five minutes of how to live life out loud. You know, there's a simplicity in seeing the beauty of our existence. It's like when I walk my dog at 7 a.m. in the morning and it's just me and him and we have this unspoken understanding that has probably been with mankind for millennia. It's why I sleep under willow trees in the late summer. There are things that are so unspoken that we, we um, forget about that will teach us why we are here. So I, I just want to finish by saying that um, lead your life with purpose and empathy. Unlearn what you believe may have been incorrect in how you've been shaped, whether it's been by your school or by your parents. And do not be afraid to show your vulnerability. It is your greatest, greatest strength. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. From as little as a pound, the price of seven bananas from Tesco's, you can join our network on Instagram, enjoy access to behind the scenes content and receive a Move Beyond Words welcome pack. To become a patron, please head over to patreon.com slash movebeyondwords or follow the link in the show notes. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds, and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios, London, with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker.